she was in a panic state and she could not really stay at home because it was danger. Remembering the victims of an airstrike that hit an Orthodox church in Gaza. For Sunday, October 22nd, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Also ahead, my co-host Ari Shapiro talks to the people at a trauma hotline in Israel to get a sense of how the country has been coping with two weeks of existential violence. We had 6,000 calls in the first week, which is about 25% of what we get in an entire year. And how the Israel-Hamas war is leading to tension in Germany, too. We will also talk to filmmaker Errol Morris about his new documentary that tries to figure out the man behind John le Carre's public persona. This is the world of spies. You're either controlling others or you're controlled by others. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Clashes along Israel's border with Lebanon intensified today as the Israeli Prime Minister warned Lebanon not to get drawn into a new war. NPR's Jane Arav has more from Amman, Jordan. Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed militia, said it attacked six sites across the border with rockets and artillery shells Sunday. The Israeli army said it attacked Hezbollah installations across the border and intercepted an armed drone bound for Israel. Hezbollah, which controls southern Lebanon, has vowed to further escalate its attacks against Israel if Israel carries through with a ground invasion of Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Sunday if Hezbollah decides to enter the war, it will be making a serious mistake, and he warned of devastating consequences for Lebanon. Israel is continuing to evacuate residents from along the Israeli-Lebanese border. Jane Araf, NPR News, Amman, Jordan. And in Berlin, thousands of people took to the streets today to show solidarity with Israel and protest against anti-Semitism. As Esme Nicholson reports, today's rally follows a number of pro-Palestinian demonstrations across Germany over this weekend. Speaking in front of crowds carrying Israeli flags at the Brandenburg Gate, Germany's President Frank-Walter Steinmeier decried a recent rise in anti-Semitic hate crimes, saying, quote, it is unbearable that Jews are living in fear again in our country of all places. Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who inaugurated a new synagogue in the eastern city of Dessau Sunday, said Germany's never again must be unbreakable. In Berlin, police have been banning pro-Palestinian rallies, citing public safety risks and the potential for anti-Semitic slogans. But in other German cities, thousands of people took to the streets Saturday in support of Palestinian civilians trapped in Gaza and to call for an end to the violence. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. There are nine Republicans now vying for the House Speaker job. The Republican conference is expected to meet tomorrow to hear from the candidates. NPR's Amy Held reports another vote is expected this week. The House is nearing three weeks with no speaker and no way to legislate. This is embarrassing for the Republican Party. It's embarrassing for the nation. That's former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Meet the Press. McCarthy is now backing Majority Whip Tom Emmer for speaker. But McCarthy also supported the two other candidates who unsuccessfully tried to succeed him after his ouster October 3rd by fellow Republicans. As they face the next vote, there's still no sign of Republicans unifying. It's going to be an uphill battle. And it remains unclear how anyone will scale that hill, winning the majority of votes to end the stalemate and become Speaker. Amy Held, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Governor Maura Healey calls errors in the construction of the new Green Line extension unacceptable. It was revealed on Thursday the rails along much of the nearly five-mile extension are too narrow and have to be repositioned. The governor says the problem predates the arrival of the MBTA's new general manager. Appearing today on Channel 4's Keller at Large, Healy said neither former Governor Charlie Baker or T workers are to blame. The problem here is with senior officials at the T under the prior administration who knew information, didn't disclose it, and most importantly, didn't address it. The good news now is we have taken steps to fix the immediate issues. In addition to track repairs, those steps include making management changes. Healy emphasized that the Green Line is safe for riders. A Medway family trapped in Gaza is still unable to cross into Egypt. That's despite the opening of the Rafah border crossing to a limited number of aid trucks. A family friend tells WBUR the family has been turned away from the border at least three times. The State Department says it's making every effort to persuade those responsible to open the crossing. A company that towed over 100 vehicles in less than two weeks in Somerville did so without a license to operate. The city council referred quick towings application for recommendation last month, but did not grant a license. The Boston Herald reported a spokesperson for quick towing said the company misunderstood and believed it had a license. Two kayakers were rescued from Ipswich Bay in the area of Pavilion and Clark Beaches this morning. Ipswich police and fire responded around 9.30. One kayaker was pulled from the water and taken to shore. The second person paddled to shore on their own. Sports, the Patriots defeated Buffalo this afternoon in Foxborough. Final score was 29-25. to It was head coach Bill Belichick's 300th career win. Patriots next to go to Miami to take on the Dolphins next Sunday. A chance of showers overnight, lows in the mid-40s, partly sunny skies, 50s tomorrow. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Today across Gaza and the West Bank, Christians dedicated their Sunday services to the victims of an airstrike that damaged an Orthodox church compound in Gaza. Palestinian officials say the strike killed at least 18 people. For the small but tight-knit community of Palestinian Christians, it is a devastating loss. NPR's Becky Sullivan reports from Jerusalem. There are few places as sacred to Christianity as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre here in the old city of Jerusalem. The church is said to stand on the spot where Jesus was crucified and laid to rest, then rose again. The churchgoers here today, people who live in Jerusalem, like Louisa Varaklis, said they were dedicating their prayers to their fellow Christians who died Thursday in the airstrike in Gaza. I mean, people in church being killed, it's devastating. It's something that you cannot conceive. There are only about a thousand Christians in Gaza, and many attend the Church of St. Porphyrius. It's the old of active church in Gaza, built back in the 12th century by the Crusaders. In recent years, the church has been used as a shelter in times of conflict between Israel and militants in Gaza, like in these last couple weeks as Israeli airstrikes have hammered Gaza in retaliation for a wave of brutal Hamas attacks on Israelis. I reached Kamil Ayed in Gaza. He's a Palestinian Christian who lives right by the church. 
In total, he says, more than 400 people were staying there last Thursday evening. Ayed was at home with his young daughters, he says, when he heard a first rocket, then a second, hit the church office building. Word spread fast, and the small Palestinian Christian community rushed to help pull people out of the office building's rubble. Ilyas Iljilde was among those helping. He says, it was very painful to hear people yell, my mother is inside, my son is inside, my sister is inside. People were frantic and so scared, he says. The Israel Defense Forces say their target was a building right by the church that they say was being used by Hamas as a command center to launch rockets at Israel. The church sanctuary itself was not struck. Palestinian officials say 18 people died in the airstrike, 17 of them Christian. That's almost 2% of the entire Christian population in Gaza. Those of us who are left are just trying to stay alive, Iljildeh says. At another church, this one near Bethlehem, hours after Sunday service had come to an end, one family was still grieving. We spoke to Bashir, who asked NPR not to use his last name out of concern for his family's safety. His wife's sister was one of the hundreds who had sought shelter at the church of St. Porphyrius, he said. She was in a panic state, and she could not really stay at home because it was danger. And she insisted to go to the church where it's safe, a safe place. It's supposed to be a safe. Nobody can touch it. But she and her grandchild, just six months old, were both killed. They thought they were escaping death, Bashir says, but it found them anyway. Maybe she chose the right place to be. It's as a Christian, as, you know, a believer beside Jesus Christ. That's it. Every Palestinian, Christian or Muslim, is feeling the same, he says. There is no hope. This is really our way of living, really. It's all tragedies, all sadness. Most of the St. Porphyrius compound is still standing. And despite Thursday's strike, there are still hundreds of people taking shelter there. The Christians in Gaza say they don't have anywhere else to go. Becky Sullivan, NPR News, Jerusalem. My co-host Ari Shapiro spent the past week reporting from Israel, and before he left, he took a look at how people there are mentally coping with everything that has happened over the past two weeks, the brutal initial attack of October 7th and the war that has been escalating ever since. When one event traumatizes an entire country, how can you measure the impact? One way is to look at phone calls to a mental health hotline since the war in Israel began. We had 6,000 calls in the first week, which is about 25 percent of what we get in an entire year. Emmy Palmore is the chair of Natal, an Israeli helpline that has existed for more than 25 years to help people experiencing PTSD from terror and war. She's had a long, impressive career in government. She describes herself as very cool-headed. And even she has been fighting a feeling of helplessness over the last two weeks that she's never felt before. I took down all the shutters, my house in complete dark. I just, I don't want anyone looking into my house. I don't want to see a shadow. I'm afraid of shadows. And I'm functioning like a machine. Since the attacks of October 7th. What has changed for Natal, this hotline that has spent more than two decades building yeah. this infrastructure? Yeah. So when everything started, unfortunately, we had people answering calls from people in their safe rooms nearby Gaza. 
uh, when you're in a safe room, that is not PTSD. That is, there's a threat outside my door. Wait, because I also ask myself the same question. The people reached out to Natal, probably because they have been previously treated by Natal or a friend of them was treated by Natal. I so mean, these it's are not, already it's traumatized not dial 911. People. It's not yeah. like a number that everybody knows by heart. And but so this, what did these therapists do when somebody on the other end of the it's, line It's the says, volunteers, first of all. What did so these volunteers do? First of all, do? I want yeah. to say the moment the missile attacks start, Natal already changes into its emergency mode, okay? So we're starting to have more people answering the lines because we know that people will call. We are starting to publish. We have like strips on TV and trying to raise awareness quickly that we are there and that we can accept calls. If there is such thing as a typical call today, can you describe for me what a person on the other end of that phone is likely to need? They will say that they can't sleep, that they can't breathe. Physically, they can't breathe. You know, they're suffering. They have obsessive thoughts, you know, that they're being afraid of... uh, Just like I told you about myself, you know, I'm afraid of shadows all of a sudden. You know, my very basic sense of security is... Is Is it strange for you, as a person who oversees this hotline to help people with trauma, to suddenly be experiencing these symptoms yourself, to realize that Uh, you could be a client as well as... Did you ask me if I'm surprised? Yeah. Not only that I'm not surprised, I'm so aware of what Natal is doing. I'm so aware. I've spoken to so many people who got help from Natal, who recovered from Natal, that I'm able to report you what I'm experiencing because I understand that it's not that I can't sleep, not because I had coffee, not because my adrenaline can't go down because I've been so active during the day, but because I understand that I'm afraid to close my eyes. Which in a way is... I want to say it's good because it represents the elimination of stigma around this. Yes. That you can recognize it, that you can describe yes. it, that you can yes. talk about it wasn't always yes. the case. Yes. And actually, I know that we take it for granted already, you know, that everybody talks about the trauma. Everybody says trauma. Everybody knows that therapists are volunteering around the country trying to support whoever they find. And yet to understand what truly PTSD is and that it will need serious treatment in order to enable people to be able to function. Can I ask what might be a complicated question? And this is not a political conversation, nor do I want it to be. Do you ever fear that the country's leaders are making decisions from a place of trauma? It's not a political question because we can say that about 75 years of politicians in Israel. First of all, yes. Second, yes and yes, because you know probably that the remembrance of the Holocaust is a very present topic in our leadership's talk, uh, speeches. But first of all, our current leaders, let's say at least some of them are second generation like me, that they were raised by people who came from the Holocaust. Who came from trauma. And came from a major trauma. I can tell you from my home, which is like a good home, you cannot be tired, you cannot be sick. You cannot be hungry. You cannot complain. You cannot say uh, something is difficult about my life. So I have children. I know what it means to raise children while not giving any legitimacy to something that is hard in your life, even if it's objective, even if it's, you know, proportional to what you're experiencing. You've been very candid about your own experience of fear and panic and pain in the last couple of weeks. If you don't mind my asking, 
Have you ever used Natal's resources yourself? It's really, really interesting because, first of all, this week, I've been telling my relatives to call Natal. And uh, last night I was sleepless. And I said to myself, maybe it's about time that I will call the helpline. And I didn't yet. But first of all, I just want to remind you that when I meet, you know, we have meetings in Natal, I'm surrounded by therapists. And, uh, and we can tell, by the way, one day, I don't want to say who it is, but it was like one of the leading professionals in Natal. And I was talking with the CEO afterward, and I said, what's wrong with her? And she said her son was just uh, enlisted to the reserve and she's, she's, she's been crying the entire morning. And my son has just come back and my daughter's boyfriend is in the reserve. And I really don't know how to divide my prayers. And I think that this is something that I've experienced in a previous war that I went through in Israel, that you always pray, you have to pray, not because you're religious, you know, like we say, we pray you know, for the safe return. And all of a sudden when it's everyone, and when you see that so many peoples have lost entire families, you ask yourself, at the end of this, am I going to be spared from death in my family? And you say to yourself, statistically, what are the chances? And then you start asking yourself, so who is number one? So you haven't called yet but it might be time. I think that now that Biden has already done everything he can for my security and my well-being, Natal is the next thing. Emily Palmor, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for being interested in our well-being and supporting our mission. It's my co-host Ari Shapiro reporting from Tel Aviv. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much for being with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Regent Theatre in Arlington, presenting a wide variety of music and dance concerts, independent film, and multicultural events. Tickets and info at regenttheatre.com. Join historian Simon Shama at City Space on Tuesday for a conversation about his book, Foreign Bodies, and the complex history of pandemics and vaccines. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Burton's Grill and Bar, with modern American cuisine and craft cocktails for family meals, business lunches, drinks with friends, and group events. Gluten-free and kids' menus available, too. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today as the second aid convoy with food, water and medicine made its way into the southern Gaza Strip. The two leaders agreed to make more of these aid trips and to focus on getting hostages freed from Hamas. Meanwhile, thousands of people in Berlin took to the streets today standing with Israel and against anti-Semitism. This after several pro-Palestinian demonstrations took place around the country this weekend. And two powerful storms are battering areas in the Caribbean and Mexico, but neither is expected to impact the coastal United States. Hurricane Tammy and Tropical Storm Norma are bringing heavy rains, gusty winds, and the potential for flooding. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. Documentary filmmaker Errol Morris is known for his profiles of singular and complicated figures. Think Donald Rumsfeld, Robert McNamara, and Steve Bannon, among others. In his latest documentary, The Pigeon Tunnel, he continues the tradition, this time profiling David Cornwell, who's better known by his pen name, John le Carre. From the very first moment of the film, it becomes clear the acclaimed British spy novelist, who was once himself a spy, is an unusual and tricky subject to profile, in part because he's so skilled at the art of the interview and trying to figure out what people are all about. Usually I have absolutely no idea of where to begin, but you gave me an idea of where to begin. And what was that? You asked me about the nature of our relationship. It went further than that, I think. It said, who are you? Because I've looked at much of your work. Sometimes you're a spectral figure, sometimes you're God, and sometimes you're present. I needed to know who I was talking to. Were you my friend across the fire? Were you a stranger on a bus? Who are you? When I interviewed Morris about that interview, I asked him about that first exchange, and he tried to explain. I would call it the Le Carre cosmology, or the Le Carre metaphysics of string pullers and dupes, because this is the world of spies. You're either controlling others or you're controlled by others. But that's not my world. And by the end of the movie, things change so much. It's no longer about that spy world. It's about our world and how we look at ourselves. You know, he's John Lacare. He's also David Cornwell. And I think that it seems like more than a pen name with him. It, it seems to say a lot about how practiced he was at putting up that professional public facade. And I think that fact seems to hang in the air throughout the interviews, throughout the film to me. And I'm wondering, you have interviewed some tough people to talk to over the course of your career, but how hard did you have to push with him to get past some of the stock answers and some of the more elliptical answers that he was so well-versed at giving to people over the years? Well, I'm making a peculiar kind of film here. The, the traditional biography film, whether it's of a writer or a political figure, you interview a lot of people. You ask A, B, C, D, E, F, and G what they think of your subject. And it becomes really about what people think of your subject rather than what they think of themselves. And by isolating this world to one figure and one figure alone. I did this with Robert S. McNamara. I did it with Stephen K. Bannon. You're forcing something unexpected. You're forcing your subject to reflect on who they are rather than have someone external to them 
reflect on who they are. There's one particular moment that jumped out to me in the movie that I want to ask you about. And you talked right there about the fact that he turned history into his books. And and one of his most famous books, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, is based in part about what happened with Kim Philby, this notorious traitor and spy who uh, turned out to be a Russian agent and really betrayed the British intelligence service. He gets so angry talking to you about him. Um, We're going to play another clip here. He's talking about how when he went to Russia, and I believe the early 1990s or the late 1980s, he's invited to meet with Philby if he wants to have dinner with him. And this is what he says. I replied, sick to the heart as I felt, that I'm soon to have dinner with our ambassador. And I can't see myself having dinner with the Queen's representative one night and dinner with the Queen's traitor the next. I just thought, there is such a thing as evil. That felt surprising to me because the through line of of so many of his novels is moral ambiguity, the fact that both sides of the Cold War were deeply flawed. There's that ambivalence. Ambivalence is a term that people always use when, when they talk about his writing about the Cold War. And yet here he is thinking about this person as a clear moral betrayal, as a clear right and wrong. I don't know, did that feel out of line with the way that he's written about it in his fiction to you? It seems surprising. I remember thinking, here's a man far less cynical than I am, a man who really does clearly believe in good and evil, right and wrong. I love that passage that you just played about the writers' conference in Moscow. But there's another passage when he was a student at Oxford and working essentially as a spy, he infiltrated a student communist organization and reported on them. And he was asked, that was a terrible thing you did. Don't you feel guilty about betraying your fellow students in such a way? And his answer is simple. They were on the wrong side of history. They worshiped Stalin. I did not. Stalin, for me, was pure evil. And what I did was the right thing to do. So there you go. I don't think you're incorrect about saying that the books are filled with moral ambiguity. They are. But he himself had a moral compass, a clear moral compass through it all. Maybe it's a contradiction. I don't know. You tell me. Well, perhaps related, perhaps not. One of the last lines in the movie is you saying to him is, I look at you as an exquisite poet of self-hatred. Why'd you say that? Because I felt his sense of disapproving of himself. I hate to say I feel the same way about myself. If I say that he's a kindred spirit, maybe we were both consumed by some level of self-hatred. I think it's one of the interesting things about him. He even tells us in the movie he never felt comfortable in his own skin. He always felt he was a poser, a trickster, a liar. Maybe this comes from his father. Maybe it comes from being a spy. But it's part of which made him a great writer, this sense of unease and Mm -hmm. ambiguity. And at the very end of the movie, I think it's an important theme for our time. Uh, And I 
mean by our time right now that history is chaos. Maybe there are no string pullers and dupes. Maybe it's all just crazy town out there. The last thing I wanted to ask you about is the idea of the subjectivity or objectivity of truth, whether it's possible to even pin it down. That that hangs over this film. It hangs over many of your films. And I'm wondering, has your view on that big question changed over the years? It hasn't. I understand why people say this to me. They say, doesn't David, David Cornwall is his real name, John le Carré, doesn't he believe in the subjectivity of truth? And I would say, no, he doesn't. He tells us in the movie that truth is absolutely objective. But in David's world, he says that truth is ineluctable. Perhaps it can only be known by some absent third party. And I ask him, is that God? Is this like Pascal's hidden God? And I think it is. The truth is always a search, a quest. It's there. It exists. But it's never handed over to us on a silver salver. We have to fight to find it, and we may not always be successful. Do you think a novelist or a documentary filmmaker has an easier job at, at trying to figure that out? Nope. I think it's hard for all of us. <laughs> it's Errol Morris. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. His new documentary, The Pigeon Tunnel, about novelist John le Carre, is out now on Apple TV+. China has been stepping up military pressure on Taiwan, but doing it subtly. A month ago, a record number of Chinese fighter planes, 103 of them, flew around Taiwan in just one day. It's all meant to wear Taiwan down without actually invading. NPR's Emily Fang explains. Robin Xu is among a group of Taiwanese military enthusiasts who obsessively track this signal communication. Chinese pilots leave as their fighter planes harass Taiwan each day. I intercepted Chinese pilot chatter at 12.04 a.m., 4.04 a.m., 7.07 a.m. Taiwan's Air Force has issued six warnings already. I met with Xu outside a Taiwanese airbase earlier this summer. Xu worries there will be a miscommunication, a misfire even, between militaries that could spiral into conflict. His worries are fueled by the daily Chinese military chatter he picks up around Taiwan this year. Chatter like this, in which a Chinese pilot warns the U.S. to stay far away. This kind of military harassment has been happening ever since last summer, when former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. It was a trip that infuriated Beijing, and it started looking for ways to up the ante on Taiwan. Means other than war are preferable. That's Alessio Patalano, a professor of war and strategy at King's College London. He says those means are gray zone tactics, meaning using military and economic coercion to intimidate Taiwan, like sending planes or banning Taiwanese goods to punish its farmers. The PRC has been committed to push the envelope in terms of what is acceptable level of the use of force underneath urban war. In other words, no hot war, no invasion. 
but a constant reminder that China has its sights on Taiwan. Li Ximing is a retired Taiwanese admiral and a former defense chief. He says this strategy is a new normal and fears that China is using it to practice for the real thing. They can practice their military requirement as they need, and even they can test the response capability from the uh, Taiwanese military. But Taiwan is limited in how it can respond to Chinese coercion. For example, Li says every time a Chinese military plane or ship gets too close, Taiwan has to scramble and send its own pilots or ships. And China just has way more of everything. Plus, Li says Taiwan doesn't want to make things worse. Because we don't want to escalate the uh, tension. And in order to maintain our morale, then we have to pacify uh, the response for this kind of a gray zone aggression. All this is straining Taiwanese pilots. Pilot Ho Shenzhen is trained to fly the American-made F-16 fighter plane. And he describes the regimen his fellow pilots are on to intercept Chinese planes. You have only about six minutes to scramble. And there are staff on call awaiting orders at all times to make an emergency takeoff. So these constant sorties are increasing Taiwan's defense costs and tiring out pilots. And analysts believe this will only continue, especially in the run-up to Taiwan's January presidential elections. Here's Cui Jingkui, a politics professor at Taiwan's National Zhongxing University. He explains through these daily maneuvers, China is trying to scare Taiwanese voters into being more pro-China. Opinion or perspective from Taiwanese nationals might affect the government's policy, and government's policy might also affect U.S.-Taiwan-China, the triangle relationship. So far, the gray zone tactics seem to be having the opposite effect in Taiwan. But China could escalate, experts say. And so enormous responsibility now lies on the shoulders of pilots like 26-year-old Wendy Wen, who flies the Taiwan-designed fighter plane, the IDF. Of course it's a tiring job. We have sentries running 24-hour shifts keeping watch. She has a message for her fellow young Taiwanese citizens. We hope more people join the Air Force in order to give our existing pilots more time to rest and recover. And we need to recover in order to fly longer and farther. Longer, given the heightened tensions around Taiwan. Because the island is trying to figure out how to outlast a bigger opponent. Emily Fang, Pure News, Taidong, Taiwan. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. As the world reacts to the events in Israel and Gaza, Germany has taken the lead in condemning Hamas and showing solidarity with Israel. At the same time, pro-Palestinian protests have broken out in many of Germany's largest cities, raising tension in a country that believes it has a historic responsibility to support Israel. NPR's Berlin correspondent Rob Schmitz joins us now to talk about this. Hey, Rob. Hey, Scott. So German Chancellor Olaf Scholz visited Israel and Egypt, declaring his country's solidarity with Israel, but also saying Germany's existence depends on that of Israel's. What does he mean by that? Yeah, this goes back to the previous Chancellor Angela Merkel, who coined the phrase Staatsraison on a visit to Israel. This is literally translated as reason of state in German. And it means that the security and existence of Israel is tied to the foundation of modern Germany, given the atrocities that Germany committed against Jews in the Holocaust during World War II. 
Now, that's important for those outside of Germany to understand because it helps explain the country's strict response to pro-Palestinian rallies and protests that we've seen here in Berlin since the Hamas attack on October 7th. Uh, after Chancellor Schultz visited Israel and Egypt, he spoke at the Bundestag, Germany's parliament, about threats posed to Jews here in Germany. Antisemitismus ist in Deutschland fehl am Platze. And he's saying here that anti-Semitism has no place in Germany, and he urged police to ban all demonstrations where there could be a potential threat of anti-Semitic slogans. And as a result, police here in Berlin have banned all demonstrations from pro-Palestinian groups. Banning all demonstrations. Berlin is home to, to Germany's largest Palestinian population. How have people in the community responded to that? Yeah, nearly every day this past week, we've seen protests from groups who support Palestinians, ignoring the police ban. This is happening in one of Berlin's largest districts, Neukölln, which is home to one of Germany's largest Muslim populations, as well as the country's largest Palestinian population. The response in Neukölln immediately following the Hamas attack grabbed some headlines. Pro-Palestinian groups held a rally that celebrated the attack, and the pro-Palestinian group Samadun the Palestinian Prisoner Solidarity Network posted photos of activists in Neukölln handing out sweets to children to celebrate. Samadun is now banned inside of Germany. Chancellor Schultz called their celebration a crime that must be prosecuted. And Berlin police, like I said, are not allowing any more demonstrations. But that ban has been defied over and over in the past week. And each time, police have had violent clashes with protesters. I mean, do we have a general sense of who the protesters are? Is this mostly Muslim immigrants or, or is it a mix of different groups? It's a mix. Uh, Berlin is not only home to a significant Muslim population, but it's also a center for left-wing politics and left-wing causes. And support for Palestinians is one of those popular causes here. So many people here are angry about this ban on rallies supporting Palestinians. They're saying that they do not support Hamas and only want to show support for families in Gaza, but they're not allowed to do that because the German government is worried about these rallies turning into attacks on Jews. And of course, that is a very sensitive issue here in Berlin, a city that still struggles with its historical role in the Holocaust. So there's a complicated and sensitive backdrop to all of this here in Berlin. That's NPR's Berlin correspondent, Rob Schmitz. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Scott. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. So glad you're with us. Hope you'll stay with us up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour, and tonight, Spike Lee on his dream project. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out, CambridgeCulinary.com. A chance of showers overnight with lows dropping to the mid-40s, uh, partly sunny skies, 50s tomorrow. 
Mostly sunny Tuesday with temps in the 60s and 70s. Mostly sunny Wednesday. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. There are nine Republican candidates vying for the House Speaker job, and the Republican conference is expected to meet tomorrow to hear from them. A nominee vote is expected this week. As the two-week-old Israel-Hamas war threatens to wider into a broader conflict, Israeli warplanes today struck targets across Gaza and reportedly at two airports in Syria. Israel has also traded fire with Lebanon's Hezbollah militant group on a near-daily basis. And at the weekend box office, Taylor Swift's concert film, The Era's Tour, stayed in the top spot for the second weekend in a row, taking in $32 million domestically. It's the only concert film in history to repeat number one for two consecutive weekends. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Around the world, women and girls end up doing most of the caregiving in a family, looking after young children, the sick, the elderly. According to a recent estimate, if women were paid just minimum wage for this work, they would add nearly $11 trillion to the global economy. But caregiving is largely unseen and unpaid. In Bogota, Colombia, the mayor decided it was time to do something about this. And a few years ago, the city launched a groundbreaking program one that focuses on helping the city's caregivers and easing the invisible load that they carry. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports. 30-year-old Catherine Lozano-Rios works for the Women's Affairs Office in Bogota. She says in Colombia, women are just expected to be the caregivers, like the women in her family. All the women around me were caregivers, and they had to abandon their education for it. And all that work inside the house went unacknowledged. As for the men, she says, they had a higher status because they were the breadwinners. They never had to do anything in the house. Rios, who's a strategy leader for the new program, says the program is trying to shake up this rigid division of labor to improve the lives of caregivers and help them find paid work. Take Ruth Infante. She's a single mother of three. My name is Ruth Gomez Infante. I'm 42 years old and I'm a caregiver. Ruth and her kids live with her parents, sister and niece. It's about 2 p.m. and she's just back home after picking up her nine-year-old daughter from school. She unzips her daughter's pink backpack to check for homework. And then Ruth plops down on a chair with a sigh of relief. Her eyes look tired behind her glasses. Her day started at 5 a.m. It's total chaos here between 5 and 6 in the morning. I'm usually yelling to my kids, Esteban, hurry up. Ivan, why are you still in the shower? Once the kids are out the door, it's time to help her parents. 
When my papa and my mama have doctor's appointments, I'll have to drop off my kids and then come back and pick my parents up. And so it goes. Ruth's been a full-time caregiver for years. She doesn't mind the work, but it is relentless and money's tight. And she's had little time for herself, even when her brother died by suicide a few years ago. Mi mama estaba terrible. Mi papá... Los niños. My mother was devastated. My father was devastated too. So were my children. And I remember a moment where I felt like I was sort of crumbling, but I couldn't afford to. With everyone depending on her, she had to hold it together. Studies show that caregiving is stressful and puts caregivers at a higher risk of symptoms of anxiety and depression. But the city's new program for caregivers is changing that for people like Ruth. (laughs) It's about nine in the morning, and Ruth is at a cardio class with a dozen or so other women. They're in a large room overlooking a neighborhood on the slopes of the Andes Mountains. Ruth's worked up a sweat. She looks happy, smiling and chatting in between songs. This center is one of the 20 care blocks launched by the new program called Manzanas del Cuidado. It offers a range of free services, education, childcare. Ruth comes here every week. I take advantage of the time when my daughter Diana is at school to dedicate some time to myself. Ruth has also taken training courses to freshen up her resume. She'd like to find a paid job. Maybe I could work four hours, but four flexible hours. Her family still depends on her, and she wants to be there for them. But for Ruth and most caregivers, finding jobs with flexible hours is tricky. There just aren't many jobs offering that. Natalia Ramirez Bustamante studies gender issues and employment at the University of the Andes in Bogota. In my interviews with employers, it was very often the case that they mentioned the need for the workers to be there at all times during working hours. What's worse, she says, is that employers actively discriminate against female job applicants. Women are sometimes made to take a pregnancy test when they apply for a job. Ramirez Bustamante says employers have admitted this to her in her research, even though the practice is illegal. I asked whether they carried out any lab exams before giving a job to a candidate. And in two cases, the heads of human resources of the two big businesses in Colombia said the only test that we order is a pregnancy test. Changing this kind of discrimination, she says, is beyond the scope of this new program for caregivers. But her research shows that it has made a profound difference in the lives of women by showing them that all that time spent looking after others, that's work too. And it's valuable work that should be shared by family members. Ruth says that's already happening in her family. Everything I learn at the care block, I will tell my kids. And now her kids are helping her out at home. For example, my son Carlos Ivan helps his grandpa take his insulin. And that's lightened her load a little so she can start making room in her life to find work that can bring in some money. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News.
The past two weeks have been difficult for many to bear, and the grief over the situation in Israel and Gaza has led to fraught protests and painful divisions on college campuses throughout the U.S. For this week's Enlighten Me conversation, Rachel Martin spoke with a history professor who is trying to find a path forward. Let me start off by saying I understand that there is no spiritual salve for the horrors in Israel and Gaza. There's no one conversation that can represent the pain felt by so many on opposite sides of this conflict. So I have struggled, frankly, with how to talk about all this and who to talk about it with. Then I happened upon an op-ed by a professor of Jewish history at UCLA. His name is David Myers. And in the piece that he wrote for the school paper, The Daily Bruin, he was trying to stake out some safe middle ground where Jews and Palestinians on campus could stand and grieve for each other. I felt like there was hope in that idea, so I reached out to him. I also craved a long view, a historian's take, because maybe with distance, the pain is somehow lessened. But historians live with us in this, the present moment. And as you will hear, they too feel the weight of all of it. So, um, how are you doing? Terribly. Yeah. Yeah, my heart is is broken. Um, I'm grieving, mourning, um, angry, um, bewildered, um, scared, all of those things. And I realize I'm not there. I'm not mm-hmm. in Israel, Palestine. I'm at a remove. Um, so what must it be to be there on the ground? And I do spend a lot of time there, but I'm not there now. And I'm feeling all these things. And it's almost unbearable. I sort of spend my time teaching, doing media appearances, and then disappearing back into a cave of depression. Mm-hmm. So how did things start to evolve on campus? Because UCLA, like many college campuses around the country, has been beset with a lot of students who are angry, who are hurt, who are suffering, who want justice for for all the people who have lost their lives. How did you see all of that emotion start to manifest and bubble up? Yeah, so I first came into contact with uh, the deep, sorrow and grief of Jewish students who were just in a state of shock. Some students whom I've taught in the past, including a class on Israel-Palestine that I've taught with a Palestinian-American colleague of mine at Tufts University, and I connected with them, um, checked in with them to to hear how they were doing, and they were really in a a state of uh, complete shock. What kinds of questions were you getting in the classroom? I think what I encountered was uh, a great deal of mystification about how students on the other side of the divide failed to understand where they were. It was much less about, can you help me understand what took place in geopolitical terms, and more about how could that group be so uncomprehending? and so lacking basic empathy. So you immediately started to feel an us versus them tension. I think I did. Both groups, and I'm sort of generalizing and speaking of these groups, uh, the groups represent those 
of strong supporters of Israel who tend to be Jewish students and supporters of the Palestinian cause, some of whom are Palestinian and Arab and many of whom are not. Mm-hmm. I think both bear within them a deep sense of grievance. The Jewish students or the pro-Israel students feel like progressive, liberal, left people with whom they have natural solidarity on many other issues refused to condemn unequivocally a massacre of Jews. And uh, those who support the Palestinian cause, I think, believe that the university and the broader political culture of the United States are insufficiently attentive to the suffering of the Palestinian people. So in all this, you're dealing with your own uh, grief over the tragedy. You are trying to still be a history professor. You are watching these tensions build among the students on your campus. At what point do you decide that you need, or yeah, that you need, you feel a need to write this op-ed? What became clear was that I had to write something that made the very simple and intuitive claim that now is the time to recognize the humanity of all. Now is not the time, at least for me, to take sides. Um, And I knew that that would elicit many suggestions that I was a traitor to my people. And I knew it would elicit um, many claims that I failed to understand the depth of suffering of the Palestinian people. But I had to write what I had to write. And I believe it's not only intuitive, it's the moral place where I need to be, which is to say it is an absolute moral imperative to condemn without equivocation the massacre that took place on October 7th. And it is a moral imperative to attend to the extraordinary suffering that Palestinians in Gaza uh, are now undergoing. And that the two are not exclusive of one another. All too often, in the best of circumstances, people feel the need to choose sides. Now, in this environment, it's understandable why people feel they can't hold on to both. But I guess I would ask, is there not a small portion of our hearts that can be reserved for the other, even in this time of grief? I don't consider myself to be a morally better person than the average. But I do think it's important to try to, in such moments, as a manifestation of our humanity, carve out a small portion that can allow us to empathize with the other. As a history teacher, I think part of your job is looking back through time and identifying patterns and teaching students also how to identify them and then to hopefully break the patterns that don't serve us anymore, right? As people, as societies, as humankind. How do you do that in this conflict when the same cycles of violence repeat themselves over and over for generations? Yeah, and those cycles are rooted in profound traumas, mm-hmm. it must be said, um, which in some sense clashed with, with one another. The trauma of the Holocaust, of course, known to almost all, and the trauma of the Nakba, of the displacement and expulsion of 750,000 Palestinians uh, during the 1948 war. 
I guess my answer to your question, Rachel, about how we break out of the mold um, is to ask ourselves, how's it going? How well is it working? And I think what we've seen over the last two weeks is it's not working well at all. That kind of death embrace of two siblings, I often often think of them as Jacob and Esau, is detrimental to the health of both. I wonder where you are finding solace right now. That's a very tricky question, in part because I take solace in prayer and in prayer in community. But this is a period in time in which I do not feel in sync with my community, Mm -hmm. and I feel my community does not feel in sync with me. And therefore, I feel some measure of what many of us feel in this time, just extraordinary loneliness. Hmm. But I also see how, particularly the Psalms, offer sources of consolation and open up the possibility of moving beyond where we are. And every day we say a verse, which I wrote down um, because I carry it with me now. In Hebrew, it's, Hafachta mispedi lemacholi, bitachta saki vetazreni simcha. It means you turned my lament into dancing. You undid my sackcloth and girded me with joy. And have to hope, because there is no alternative, that once again, our lament can turn into dancing. David Myers, professor of 